0: G'day, everyone. Uh, really excited for this discussion today. Uh, today, I've got uh, Trevor Gauntlet with me, who's a bit of a specialist in supply chain and uh, well, additive chemistries and a whole bunch of different stuff. Been in and around the industry for a very long time and got a lot of experience. And so very excited to tease out some of these um, supply chain, let's say, concerns. Um, you know, I, I think a, a common thread that our industry has experienced is that COVID really exposed maybe some of the interconnectedness um, of a lot of our supply chains. And um, so there's no one better to talk about with this than Trevor. Uh, you may recognize his name from many sort of trade publications, Lubes and Greases, FNL, and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm really interested to get his, his insights. So thanks, Trevor, for for coming on and agreeing to um, what is a very complex topic. And this <laughs> has a lot of interest at the moment because uh, these supply chain, let's say difficulties, uh, don't seem to be letting up anytime soon. So yep. um, if we can just maybe jump straight into it, um, maybe the first question is really around uh, base oils and, and base oil shortages, which it feels like that's what hit us first when, when COVID started. Now, my understanding of, let's say, the state of play around base oils was that uh, integrated companies are producing both fuel and lubricants. Uh, let's say that demand for both of those products dropped off a cliff when uh, you know lockdowns were imposed by governments around the world. And then there was a period sort of after that where uh, let's say, um, demand for lubricants came back, but the demand for fuel did not come back to the same extent. And that caused a bit of a dislocation between, uh, demand for two different products, which come from the same feedstock. So with that in mind, how close are we to kind of normal operations? And and are you able to elaborate a little bit more on some of those challenges that we went through in, let's call it, uh, you know, March through June of of
1: 2020?
0: Uh, yes. Cause and I,
1: I'm going to start with a, a caveat. I'm not a refinery expert. Yeah. Um, but the, the first three months of COVID lockdown. I think that there's quite a distinct difference between then and now, because then was all about, um, refinery capability. Um, so as you, you just said, you know, basically a refinery starts with a distillation color. And most refineries, um, that produce the full range of crude products. Um, they'll be optimized on the fuels part and of course demand falling off a cliff for fuels had never happened before. Mm -hmm. Um, but what you had there was the the refineries just had no outlet for the fuel. So they had to basically cut back production and therefore there was no lubricants. And, um, if there's no demand for lubes and bitumen and the other things off the bottom of the column, then of course they can put them through a cracker and create more fuel. Um, but that couldn't happen last year. Um, of course, you, you know, perhaps you, you can remember there was a day or so sometime in May or June when crude oil prices went negative. Yep. That and, um, thing. Yeah. And, and that was down to lack of storage capability, but that was also true of finished products. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, if, if people weren't putting gas in the tank, then there was nowhere to store the gas. So, and that basically affected production last year. Um, this year and of so where's the new normal going to be? I think, um, it's now about economics. So demand for gasoline is returning in many countries. Demand for diesel didn't really drop that much because Even though countries locked down, they still realised that goods had to be shipped from A to B to C, even if it was just personal protective equipment. Um, so diesel demand did drop, but is probably in most countries somewhere back near the same level. Um, and therefore refineries are are, are able to run again and, and produce, um, base stocks suitable for conversion in to, um, to, to lubricant space oils. Raw materials for covid driven space loads. Um, so I think we are somewhere near the new norm. older refineries that were already smacked heavily in the face by IMO 2020, hmm. um, certainly didn't weather the storm of COVID, um, well, that was like receiving you know left hook after the right job, um. And so, you know, one or two of the older refineries, um, in Europe in particular that were already being touted throughout 2018, 2019, as being vulnerable to the effect of IMO 2020, um, and, and therefore would lose their capability to produce
0: group one bases, they they, have closed down. Um, Maybe just to jump in, in here yeah. in, in case anyone's not familiar. So IMO 2020 has got to do with, uh, fuel, basically quality in the yeah. In the, in the Marine industry, right? So the global Marine fleet moving from a a higher sulfur to a a lower soft fuel. Yes. And so
1: International Maritime Organization and first of January, 2020 was when it was introduced. Um, and oil refineries that were able to produce the lower sulfur fuels still had relatively good refinery economics. Hmm. Um, those that didn't have the capability to produce those IMO 2020 compliant fuels, um, that affected their ability to produce base oils. If they were also producing base oils or having associated base oil plants. Um, so yeah, that, those are the first things and, and they've, I, I think that's tended to have a, a negative effect on declining the group One base oil uh, availability. Um, mainly in Southern Europe and a little bit in North Africa. Um, the Americas in the, in the East tend to have not been that badly affected, um, because they tended to be, already aiming towards producing group twos or group threes anyway. So it's, it was mainly in Europe where there was a lot of older equipment that this has affected base oil supply. Then we move to economics. And I think that's where we are at the moment. Um, so, so the New York, um, so again, refinery economics are driven by fuel. Um, mainly gasoline demands has picked up diesel demand has picked up. Aviation fuel demand is, is still lower though in the United Kingdom. We're looking at the way hey, this week. We're allowed to go to America again. <laughs> Uh, and certainly the airlines are, are suddenly burning a lot more jet A1 than they were last week. Um, and jet is, is really important to refineries because there's a, there's a really good margin there. Um, but probably what you've seen to compensate things in many countries in the world, um, is that gasoline and diesel prices have risen significantly. Yeah, they certainly, are. um, and, and I think that's the, that's the oil companies trying to recover the margin that they can't get on jet A or jet A1, depending on which part of the world they're in. And this is obviously going to affect the cost of lubricant based stocks. Um, because the refinery operators are having to find that margin from somewhere else. So I think the aviation fuel market may actually be a a good indicator of where lubricants prices might go. If demand for aviation fuel stays low, and we're making the assumption that everything else is roughly constant or a gentle ride back towards pre-COVID levels, um, if the Jet-A, Jet-A1 market um, stays suppressed, then refinery operators are going to be recovering their costs from elsewhere. And so we're going to see higher basal prices yeah. and those basal prices are probably going to hold.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because I think it's, it's hard to have that crystal ball uh, to uncover exactly what the future of air travel really looks like, right i mean there's there's talk about people cutting back on you know business travel, there's talk about business travel being a thing of the past. Um, some people are saying that there's going to be an absolute tourism boom on the other side of this. so uh, I guess it's uh, if the if the economics of um, let's say the aviation industry are going to be a, a leading indicator of of base oil prices, um, then that suggests that there are a range of like a quite a wide range of outcomes uh in sort of like the medium term yeah yeah interesting um so that helps us understand maybe a little bit of the background on on the base oils and uh maybe we'll we'll come back to to group one in a little while but i guess the other component that people generally will think of when they think of lubricants you've got base oils and you've got additives yeah and it feels like uh maybe additives is a, a market which is maybe a little bit. Uh, not, not as well understood because it's a slightly more complex market in some ways. Uh, I think people can understand base oil refining and how it's connected to fuels. Whereas if you're not involved in the chemicals industry, the additives market seems a little bit more um, complex or opaque. Um, you know, We heard things at the margins about how the fact that there was a reduction in group one supply or actually, sorry, a reduction in fuel refining meant that sulfur supply got tight. That then affected the chemicals industry and you know, in, in lubricant additives, affected things like, you know, sulfurized olefins and, and um, many sulfur based additives. But are you able to maybe speak to some of the, um, more specifics of the additive supply chain and what were some of the dislocations we saw there? And, um, my understanding of the additives market is that it's still challenged. Um, and maybe if you could talk us through, uh, yeah, some of, some of the challenges as well as maybe your understanding of the outlook.
1: Right, I'm not sure about talking about the detail because one of the things about the additives market is that it's so multifarious, right? So, um, and and I would say that the supply chain problems in the additives industry, as far as a conversation between us is concerned, (laughs) we have to focus on the... Well we we really just say the additives is part of the chemicals industry. Yeah. And you took you touched on a brilliant example there, I think, in, in terms of sulfur. Way, way, way down the supply chain for, let's say, a passenger car, motor oil additive package that's been supplied by one of the package companies to um uh a, a, a small as the Americans call them, Molenpop um type lootness manufacturer, but it has been affected by the lack of availability of sulfur because refinements have have shut down essentially. Okay. And those kind of things, they are going to be specific to a particular additive or a particular additive type. So I'd rather say this is just an example. Mm. It's something that I've I've done in in, in the past in my consulting work. This is an example of the kind of things that everybody has to look at their own supply chain. So. If you look at the multi-dimensionality of the issues that the chemical industry faced and the additives industry is just a small pile. First of all, you've got COVID shutdowns at every single point in your supply chain. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking back at it, you may have, um, farm oil coming from Malaysia or Thailand, you've got metals coming from, let's say, lithium coming from Chile or China, or um, if you're going to be making greases, um, you've got your so, so your other metals are coming from, um, countries in Africa, for example. Um, you've got lockdowns in many of those countries. You've got lockdowns in the processing, which may not be in the same country. You've got lockdowns and shutdowns in the actual, and um, the chemical companies. Now say we've moved from the developing world into the developed world. Um, so these, these, all of these shutdowns at various points in the supply chain affects availability. Um. You've got therefore shortages of key ingredients and in an additive package to go back to the one that's going to a mom and pop blender in, in somewhere in, in the United States, for example, um, that may have 20 to 30 different supply sources for the ultimate raw materials. All the way along the supply chain, you've got shortages of truck drivers or train drivers, or maybe there's a social distancing rule. Um, all, all the hygiene rules are preventing efficient transports. Um, so, um, th- this happened in the United Kingdom with, um, passenger rail. In some cases, you needed to have two people in the cab of the train and we were on a two meter social distancing. You couldn't get two people in a, in a, in, a, in the cab of a, a train at that two a- meters social distance, so the train didn't go Yeah. Um. But you also then got the issue that, you know, maybe, um, your, your, um, freight forwarding company or your your shipping company, um, also can't staff a barge or ship, you know, and they don't run. Of course, later on in, in COVID, we then go into container shortages. They became public domain, but they were actually right there, right at the start. Mm. And poor processes were slow right from the start. Again, forced on by social distancing, staff absences. People were isolating at home. Um, yeah, you know, inability just to, just to get the work and then sort of like the, the real, they didn't need to be another domino, but there was, and um, it was the blockage of the Suez canal, which, of course, stopped an awful lot of stuff getting from the east to the west and an awful lot of empty ships getting from the west to the east or essentially empty ships getting from the west to the east. Um, and they were all generic, um, to the chemicals industry. And so it's difficult then to talk about specifics because um, uh, a detergent from one manufacturer has a completely different supply chain from another one. So, the, the factors that affected those may have been quite different. But it does bring me to a, a, you know my last point, which I was going to miss there. So <laughs> just problem myself. We've got this divergent issue here, which is why it's so difficult to talk about specifics. But you also have a convergent one, where occasionally you have a single source of supply but it's four or five steps up in supply chain. Um, and I would suspect that that happened somewhere. I'm not aware of it within the lubricants industry. Um, but somewhere up the supply chain of certain access packages, or even just of certain individual ingredients, um, there may well have been a single source of supply and so some companies are thinking. Oh, I'm okay. You know, I've got three people here selling, we want to sell them in Additive X, but actually none of those three people can get Additive X because even though they sell it under three different brand names, it's actually got some raw material, a couple of steps further up the supply chain, which is unique and it's unavailable.
0: Right, right. Yeah. That's so, uh, does that help in, in describing the web? It does because it does. It does. Yeah. it's, it's so complex and, uh, yeah. And that's why I was saying that I think that the the additive markets, you know, to an outsider, seem a lot more opaque than the base oil market does. The base oil market mm-hmm. seems a little bit more straightforward to understand. Um, it's funny that you bring up the the incident in the Suez Canal because it felt like that was a bit of a turning point where the supply chain uh, issues kind of broke into the mainstream, and everyone yeah. then was able to appreciate how interconnected all the global supply chains were. Not just in the chemicals industry, but you know, if you were buying toys for your kids or something like that, they yeah, everything yeah. got locked up. Go look it yep. up there. Maybe just to um, uh, ask one further point on that, though, is that mm-hmm. um, it, my understanding of you know talking with various people in the industry is that additives seem to still be challenged in the current environment. Is that is that be do you or, or if you don't know, do you suspect that that is because of some of these third or fourth order effects that you were talking about, where there might be a you know a single source supplier into many additive companies or many additive components, or is it a little bit more like, let's say the semiconductor industry with cars, where they're still playing catch up from, you know, supply, uh, constraints that occurred, you know, maybe 12 months ago. Um, that's a good point and a good prompt. <laughs> um,
1: cause of course the, the semiconductor the problem with cars came out of a weather related incident, which we, I haven't even mentioned at that point. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, that, I've forgotten about the weather of <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um. It, uh, that's another one of those, I, th- I think, um, you know, the, the second blow. Oh yeah. After the first one's stunned, you know, you, you then get the secondary punch and, and COVID was the stunning one. And then the weather incidents in, in Texas in particular in, in February this year, um, they, they were then the, if you like the, the knockout punch. Um, and yeah, the, it, it, the, that was another major destruction. Um, so you, you had an awful lot of. Um, Gulf coast refining capacity affected by those power outages in, in the extreme cold weather that Texas saw in, in January and February. Um, and of course they're, they're such a, an important source of, of raw materials, um, for the chemicals industry in general, and, and to certainly the, the North American based additive supplies. Um, so another. Supply chain disruption then leads them with unbalanced inventories. Um, and so they, they may have recovered, let's say on the, the chemical raw material side, so they've managed now to secure whether it be the, you know, the calcium carbonate they need or the zinc oxides that they need, um, for the mineral extraction, but suddenly they're missing some of the organic chemicals, um, because they haven't been manufactured due to some of these outages of, of Gulf coast, refineries and then chemical plants as, as a result of the, um, and around. the, the weather events, um, and I think I, I have no idea how many, well, I have a good guess as to how many, um, chemical components, the additive suppliers deal. with, And if we just talk about the big four to start with, but of course then all the players in the East who are, um. You know, they, they, they were, well, they, they are working on thousands of components mm. um, that they have to source into their operations globally, you know, because they've all got manufacturing capability uh, in the Americas, in Western Europe, and in the East. And so those thousands of components, you know, they, they may find that they're well-stocked in the East, but they've got shortages in the Americas. Um, or any combination thereof. And then they've got the issue that they can't get their backup supply from point A to point B. Um, couple of times in the last couple of weeks, I've seen images of, um, the Pacific ocean outside the port of Los Angeles, for example. Um, and ships just can't get in and out. Yeah, I've seen
0: like, I think ships stranded off the coast as far as you can see, right?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, so here we are, you know, many, many, many months beyond that Suez Canal shipping crisis and where, where the Suez Canal was blocked. And we're still seeing that. And apparently it's, it's true Shanghai, it's true in Singapore. It's true in Europe. Um, you know, there's a major risk due to the Christmas and we get back to kids toys. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Christmas is going to be banned because, uh, in, 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 the UK, because, um, the major deep sea port in the UK, Felixstowe, um, became crammed up and ships started to divert to Rotterdam and then no Rotterdam is only, I don't know, it's about a hundred miles <laughs> across one bit of sea. Yeah. Um, but then the question was, well, how the heck are they going to get the short sea shipping of those intercontinental containers are going to get them back into the UK and get them back into the, um, into the supply chain. And we're only we talking about here a small island with 70 million people on it, you know, compared to 7 billion in the world. Yeah. Um, so the, these are really, really big issues and it only takes one ship to be diverted for some material to stay out of the supply chain for weeks, if not months, yeah. Before they can find an alternative way of getting
0: it to its uh, intended destination. Yeah. And then it really sort of, uh, starts to back up. Yeah, maybe you know you you sort of described um the one-two punch right of of it was COVID and then it was followed yeah. by uh, some of the weather of extreme weather events that we saw. Um, then the chem tool factory burnt down, and that sort of felt unfair at that point. That you know if there's a one-two knockout punch, that feels like the opponent punching you while you're on the canvas. Um, what is you know obviously there's a terrible. Unfortunately, no loss of life, which is which is great, um, but obviously people's livelihoods are going to be changed there, you know, through loss of jobs and that kind of thing. But for the wider grease market, my understanding was that they manufactured firstly a huge volume of grease, but also yeah. substantial volumes of things like OEM greases and, and white label greases. Yeah, um, that's now sort of spreading throughout the market as well. So, how how does that production capacity get addressed by the rest of the market? Um, if say something about. Chemtool, I mean, I visited
1: Chemtool several years ago at, at, at Rockton. And I'd and have to say it was pro- it was the cleanest grease plant I ever visited. Mm. Um, so really was a, a major shock because everything about the place said quality, high quality. Mm. Um, so really was a major shock. And, and obviously, you know, it, it, I, I even saw that, um, CBS describes, um, Rockton as a village and I, I never heard that to describe a settlement in the United States. Yeah. You've got the East village in New York city, which is part of Manhattan, but you know, you know, a village, you yeah. know, and so, you know, 70 people in, in Rock, Mill, Illinois is a, a very, very large part of that population. It's a real shame. Um, and, and you know, awful for that. Um, if you're a white label grease supplier in, in North America, so supplying the OEM greases, et cetera, et cetera, then you're in a great position Um, I mean, most, most manufacturing plants operate on a five days, two shifts system. (laughs) Now, okay. The the, the weekend and the overnight is not dead time because you can charge a reactor you can charge the blending vessel and leave it stirring overnight. And the lab team come in an hour before the, the early shift and take a sample. And then everything gets moved on, providing everything's past the tests. Um. But there is potential uh, to increase production, provided, of course, you can get the raw materials. <laughs> um, and of course, the really unfortunate thing is he touched on with Chemtool was that, um, everybody was ramping up anyway. So demand was beginning to turn. People were maybe, uh, customers were, were repen- replenishing, um, stocks. and there was probably a little bit potentially of stock building by suppliers. So the initial effect was a, a, a major, major shock. Um, yeah, I don't have figures on the relative volumes. Um, and of it, course it's very difficult to, to predict in batch processing type activities like waste manufacturing. Um, but I should think if you're a, a shareholder in the competitors chem tool in North America, you're very happy at the moment because your, your company should be humming along and generating Nice margins and, and nice volumes. But, um, but I think it, it the, probably structurally, there was always a little bit of overcapacity anyway. Right. Um, but with President Biden having got through a significant amount of his infrastructure um, bill uh, in the last couple of weeks, then that would tend to indicate that there's going to be an awful lot of new demands from construction, from metals, um, you know, because there's gonna be big golden spending in these areas to get these infrastructure projects up and running over the next one to two years. I mean they're not up and running in two years' time, politically they're not gonna help Biden or whoever's gonna succeed Biden. Um so politically there's gonna be a lot of pushing in in the States. Um and and all I really see on that is if you're a North American grease supplier then you're looking forward to um, some really good business uh, yeah. because the chances are that that market's going to be capacity constrained for quite a while.
0: Yeah, so gear up. Um, yeah. And maybe as we sort of start to wrap up, my, my final question is more of a, a future outlook, uh, which is how I sort of like to finish off most of these interviews. Is more around um, maybe the long-term outlook mm-hmm. and you know, what, what kind of changes do you see as becoming maybe more permanent so we've seen, for example, a bit of a reduction in Group One supply. It feels um, is that something which is is permanent? Although it feels like you know everyone's talked about the death of bright stocks for a very long time, and they seem to continue to truck along. Um, yes. And then, what about sort of some of the alternate uh, you know base stocks? Because there is a, a bit of a wave of green investment that's coming, um, you know, as part of let's say Biden's agenda. Um, what do you see as the as the outlook for? for lubricants?
1: Um, right. Base stocks. <laughs> I've got an article about... Um, <laughs> about well, I'll point everyone to... Uh, I'll point everyone to that d- in the d- description. D- yes. difference your limbs and greases. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah. Um, group one production will continue to Um Passenger car, motor oil requirements in particular are pushing um, group two and group three adoption. Group two is often more... Um, cost effective than group one now. And therefore, even when the ICE market starts to disappear, something that we haven't even discussed, um, then the economics of group two make it better. Um, group two is, is, um, slightly more dislocated from, well, slightly more separated from the fuels market, uh, as well. So, uh, sorry, from the other heavies parts of the market and, and therefore group two production can be more easily switched on and off. Um, it's not so integrated into the overall final configuration as group one is. So it's another way we go to, um, two. um, greener things though, I think that are, are really where it's, it's going to happen because again, COP26 may not have done everything that the environmental, um, lobby wanted, but there's a definite move away from fossil derived products. And sustainable aviation fuel, which I sort of got interested in three or four or five years ago is now becoming reality. And some of these domestic waste to fuel or, um, agricultural waste to fuel type activities, they can be turned. I think in the longer term towards larger molecules. Mm -hmm. So at the moment you're, you're making sort of eight carbons long, octane for gasoline or 15 carbons long, c for diesel. For a lubricant based stuff, you want certain carbons. So it's only twice as big as a diesel molecule. Yeah. Um, and so these things could come from that point of view. And so the likes of Novi, um, that it, it, it's you know, going to be marketed by Chevron in, at least in uh, the Americas, that's one of those things. It's the first thing there. And of course the key thing about that is it's not. A molecule. It's not something like an estolide, which is a, a type of ester, and therefore priced as an ester. Then it's a base stock, and I think you probably see quite a bit of that waste to X type of activity. Whether it's municipal solid waste, which is where the some of the sustainable aviation fuels coming from, or whether it's segregated waste like plastics to such and such, rubber tires to such and such. Um, some of those will inevitably find their way into lubricant base stocks. Um, maybe just as blending components in the next decade, but maybe, maybe probably in the longer term, a lot of our base our virgin base stocks hmm. will come from that. And of course, the, the circularity elements, again, if you are gonna talk about COP twenty-six, then um re-refined base oils are now of excellent quality. I've been in the business long enough where, you know, and somebody came to us, you know, with, with re-refined base. oh my God, you know, the, the, the oxidative, um, you know, susceptibility of these materials is off the scale. You know, we, we can't activate these things enough to put them back into an industrial application, um, to the point now that some of them are group three. Probably. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's 20 years of development. Um, obviously a lot of that development has been supported by Legislative and government intervention, financial incentives or companies, but we're getting to the point where they are now, um, edging towards financial viability without any subsidy. And the issue then becomes, well, are we going to be able to re-refine vegetable oil derived products? So those things that would come down a green room anyway, mm. um, alongside mineral oil refines products and then, the, and then the whole industry's got this thing. We've got this circular economy, but it starts with fossil, it starts with crude oil and we've got this green economy on the other side, which starts with vegetable oil, but we don't know how to re-refine this. So it's essentially single use.
0: <laughs> yeah. I hadn't really thought about the <laughs> economy. Yeah.
1: yeah. So you know, those things, but because the vegetable der- derived stuff, if after use you can make it relatively Clean and it's got relatively little environmental impact at end of use and disposal. Then it actually gains some really good um, environmental credits. Mm-hmm. But if you're working with re-refined base oils, then you're reducing your environmental impact of used oil significantly by returning it process. Um, and I think the carbon footprint of re-refining is less than refining from fossil. Uh, from crude oil and therefore the big issue around refining becomes something that's not that technical from the point of view of chemistry or anything like that. It becomes simply the, the whole thing about segregation and collection. And, uh, that, that then becomes the, the, the big issue. Can the oil industry persuade its customers to segregate waste and turn that into a product that can then be put into that circular cycle so that we start probably re-refining a lot of the products that we use in the industry global.
0: Mm. It'd be interesting to see how that, that happens. It, it mm. may end up being a wider behavior change that goes well beyond our industry, right? As mm-hmm. these circular economies start to get set up in, in not just our industry, but others as well, as that becomes the norm to you know, segregate your waste, that might just get yeah. adopted by, um, by industrial customers and the like. Well, um, that seems like a really great place to end it. Uh, Thank you so much to Trevor uh, for your time and uh, your expertise and your knowledge that you've shed a light on what is a very, very complex topic and something which a lot of people are going to be be interested in. So really appreciate your time today. Um, For anyone that's interested, I will link uh, Trevor's uh, website uh, down below. It's got links to all the various articles that uh, he's written, especially over the last couple of years, um, of which I think this audience will will have a lot of interest in. And so, yeah, Trevor, um, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Okay, thanks very much.